Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Seligson. What's up, Dan? Well, Miriam, oh, crap. I was going to say something really clever, but honestly, I, I can't remember. Well, Dan, thankfully, help is on the way for your short-term memory issues. Joining us on this episode is USA memory champion Joshua Four. Josh is also an author, global explorer, and journalist. He is the co-creator of Safaria, a digitized collection of 3,000 years of Jewish texts in Hebrew and English translation. For Jews, often called the people of the book, this is an incredible and invaluable tool. In addition to sharing a few memory tips with us, especially me, we discuss Doth Yomi, the daily reading of the Babylonian Talmud that has been called Judaism's largest book club. Tens of thousands of people are accessing Jewish text every morning through Safaria, including Miriam and me. We are thrilled that Josh could join us on the phone to talk about his many exciting and innovative projects and what he's taking on next. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today on The Vibe of the Tribe. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's get right into it. Um, I have a bit of a long question to start us off with. In your best-selling book, Moonwalking with Einstein, you talk a lot about memory and traditional (laughs) ways that the ancient world used memory in the context of your preparations to enter the USA Memory Memory Championship. You talk about Greek memorization practices, the memory palace, the story of Simonides. And there's something that is directly relevant to Dan and me that you also discuss. We are learning Dafyomi. For our listeners, that's a page of Talmud per day. And that's the oral Torah written down. But before it was written down, in ancient Israel and Judea, there were people called Tanaim who taught and recited the oral law in a line supposedly going all the way back to Moses. So in your book, you call them human tape recorders. And this is really fascinating to me. What can we learn about Judaism and memory from the Tanaim? Well, you know, Judaism has always put a high premium on memory and you know we live it in all of our rituals today we're constantly remembering things that happened to us collectively a very very long time ago um and of course we have a uh, distinction that from 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 very early on there this idea there was a you know an oral law and uh and a written law mm-hmm. and the oral law was memorized and not to be written down um and it's what's so interesting about uh, a, you know an oral tradition, and every pre-literate culture had an oral tradition um, before you had the invention of writing. Is what's so interesting about the Jewish tradition is that we kept uh, our oral tradition sacred and apart and special for such a long time after it was clearly possible to write it down. Mm. It's not like um, you know, we hadn't figured out how to how to write things down yet, so we, we passed them down orally. Like we knew how to write things down. Writing had been invented a long time ago. We we had a written Torah. But we kept a certain um a certain part of our tradition, uh as something that was allowed only to live in memory. And that had all sorts of social and cultural uh, effects. Like, like a, a text that is only remembered by an elite few, is only held by an elite few in the 
privileges that elites do in, in interesting ways. And, uh, but it also like makes what is being remembered in a way like more alive because it exists only in conversation between humans. And we've preserved that today, that like Torah as an action, not as a noun, um, Torah as an activity is something that like happens biologically between different, between people and in conversation and, um, not, it's something that happens like you don't, we traditionally don't sit down and, you know, read a text. We sit down and talk about a text. Right. That's, that's, that's sort of the Jewish modality of learning. So that's probably intimately tied to our tradition of privileging memory. So in your 2012 TED Talk, you mentioned how you were a science reporter interested in the subject of memory, and you decided that the only way to truly cover the issue was to dive into the process of these memory championships. Uh, and I was a journalist a long time ago, and this process is something, frankly, that not many journalists actually put themselves through. How did you become interested in this subject to begin with? Was an immersive experience kind of essential to to getting this right, getting the story right? Yeah, I mean, I, with with every subject that I get myself in, interested in, really interested in, like I, I'm all, often trying to figure out a way to experience it more deeply or uh, understand it more deeply, which means like throwing myself into it. And in the case of these memory competitions in this world of competitive memorizing that I wrote about in Moonwalking with Einstein, I had gone as a journalist to go cover uh, this strange sounding contest called the U.S. Memory Championships. And just the nature of like wanting to understand how this works and um, like how it was possible that people who seemed to have these extraordinary memories were able to perform these feats they were performing. And yet these same people told me that they had trained themselves. They didn't have incredible natural memories. I wanted to understand this. So that meant trying to see if it was possible for myself to improve my memory using ancient memory techniques. And so it was just like, once I started pulling up these threads, I just <laughs> kind of found myself thinking deeper and deeper into this, uh, into the quicksand of this story. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point I looked up and like, I was really, really deep into it and training my own memory and eventually entering this same contest, the U.S. Memory Championship that I'd covered as a journalist. For those who haven't read your book, what techniques and exercises do you suggest um, people could do to improve their memory and retention? For example, Dan and I have been building memory palaces, as per you describe as as you describe in your book, um, and populating them with facts or scripts for us to recall. But for people who just want to improve their everyday memory, what would you recommend? Yeah, so there is this, this trick called the memory palace. This technique that goes back to antiquity that um, is like, in a way, the great big magic trick of this whole thing, which is like, once you learn the technique, it suddenly becomes possible to memorize you know, huge amounts of information. Um, but all of the techniques that date back to antiquity uh, all tend to rely on figuring out how to transform information into visual images. And that the idea is, as bad as we are remembering numbers and um, written information. We have really, really excellent visual memories. And so if you can pick, figure out a way to visualize whatever it is that you're trying to remember, you can give yourself a big advantage. And so that's like, that is the, the simple basic idea behind a lot of um, much more complicated 
techniques, many more complicated techniques that are, are used in memory computation. It's fascinating that you mention imagery because I realized after discussing your book with someone who works in our marketing department, I found out that we have a super recognizer on staff. And Ooh, what does that mean? It, it's a person who can almost never forget a face. They'll see someone on a bus who was in a class with them, you know, 30 years ago, and they'll say, do you remember when we took that history class or whatever? And the person will say, who the hell are you? And how do you know this? And she has to explain herself. But super recognizers are sort of these people who are unintentionally doing what you're talking about. They're retaining an unbelievable number of images and they're able mm. to process when they're seeing people in real time. It's amazing to me. Mm. I don't know anything about that. It's kind of worth looking into. Great New Yorker article from a couple of years ago, if you want to check it out. So, but yeah, I, great. I've been thinking about how our brains retain information. For example, you've described the the memory palace in which you store really an enormous volume of visual information. And I'm curious, at least for me, I would have to clear that out to be able to take in new things. Do you find that you have to make room? At, like, For example, do you recall a long list that you were asked to retain for some kind of a memory challenge? Well, I mean, I, I still remember the first pack of phone calls I ever memorized because, you know, you always remember your first time. <laughs> um, but no, generally speaking, the way it works in these memory contests is you're creating this imaginary structure in your mind that I call the memory palace. And you're cramming it filled with images of the things that you need to remember, whether it's um, the words of a poem or a string of random numbers or a deck of playing cards is one of the events in the competition. Um, but for the sake of these competitions, you then want to, as soon as you've recalled your, you know, shuffled pack of playing cards, you probably forget it afterwards because that's just not useful information to be lugging around with you all the time. And the way one does that is by just not thinking about that memory talent, that place in one's mind for as long as possible because all memories play on a gradient and, uh, will eventually, uh, disappear. So if you're trying to remember something for the very, very long term, like something you want to remember forever, then in theory, you would create a memory palace that would hold only that information, but not use it for anything else. But that's not what's going on in these competitions. This is like, cram it in, regurgitate it, and then move on. But like, theoretically, you could have a whole neighborhood. Theoretically, you could have a whole city. I mean, that's like, it turns into this almost like, like forehead story. Right. Some of these characters... <laughs> who, like, there's a guy from Germany who, and by the way, the Germans love this memory competition thing. It's so interesting. It's like something about this just scratches an itch in the Teutonic soul. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they have high school memory championships and regional memory championships and national memory championships. And, um, the, you know, the, the German memory champion gets endorsement deals, and it's a, it's a real thing over there. <laughs> That's so amazing. But, like, there was one guy who I interviewed, who, a young guy, who would actually, he wouldn't, his memory palaces weren't real buildings. He would invent architecture in his mind's eye. It was designed for the purposes of remembering other things. And he had whole cities, like, wow. created space that was totally imaginary, that existed only to hold memories. And it's like, it's wild. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's almost magical. Yeah. Let's talk about the genesis of safaria.org, which is a 
amazing resource. It's an amazing website that you founded that provides digital access to all kinds of Jewish texts. And I use it on a daily basis in my work. You know, you've got the Torah, the Tanakh, the Talmud. Um, and these are all accessible to me now. I, I physically don't have to go out and purchase these uh, these books. I don't have to have shelves and shelves of the Talmud in my own home, and I, I can't afford it anyway. But uh, so this is this is so freeing to be able to access um, these texts in this way. What made you want to create this online library, and what were some of the biggest challenges in terms of getting it off the ground? Sure. When I was 17 years old, I went on a trip to Israel with a guy named Brett Lockspizer, who grew up in Denver. I grew up in D.C. And we had fallen out of touch for about 10 years. And he had gone off and uh, went to Google, where he had been a, a lead product manager. And he had recently left Google. And I, we reached, I reached out to him. And we hadn't spoken in 10 years. And we started talking about this shared frustration that we both had with the state of Jewish text online at that point. This is probably 2011. Mm -hmm. And at that point, if you were looking for, if you went to Google, the English Talmud, you got, um, I think the first result was like some pirated PDF. Uh, <laughs> the second result was the, like this partial terrible translation from 1918. Like it didn't, I mean, it was all like one big long text file. Um, and then your third result was an anti-Semitic website. Of course. And it felt just atrocious as a situation. But it also suggested um, not only like a, a, a problem to remedy, but that there was a huge opportunity. Mm. And that there's going to be this moment when I mean, we, we already talked about this transition from orality to literacy that happened in the Jewish tradition. And that we are in the midst of another great transformation that is going to have really a profound impact on um, not just human culture, but uh, a Jewish culture and Jewish life and the Jewish religion. And that, trans that transformation is going to happen um, in part by through the uh, digital transformation that's happening uh, right now. And so that we thought, we said, look, if we can make, our tradition, our textual tradition, available and accessible online and free, not just in the sense that you don't have to pay for it, but like free in the sense that everything that we do on Safari is in the creative commons. So that like, if somebody else wants to create an app using our translation of the Talmud, wonderful, great. We want that to happen. We want this to belong to everyone. We felt that if we could do that and do it in the right way, that it could really change how how we all collectively relate to our textual tradition. Mm -hmm. And that was the big ambitious idea we had. And you asked how we got started. I mean, it started with like a one page written kind of idea. And we took it around to some people we thought might be interested in giving us some seed funding. We had a hard time uh, raising any real money for it. And then Brett, who's a technological wizard, went and like, you know, I'm going to build this thing. And like, it won't be great, but we'll have like a minimum viable product and we'll take it around and we'll see if it works. And maybe people, once they see it, will understand what this could be. And so we spent a couple months doing that. And then we had to people could start to like feel it and touch it and, and understand what it would mean to have all Jewish texts in one place interconnected in the way that all of these texts actually are interconnected yes. and speaking to each other. 
and to have English translation to make these texts accessible to um, an English-speaking audience that might not have the uh, linguistic ability to read them in Hebrew or Aramaic. And, and then the ball just started rolling down the hill. And it feels like over the last year or two that the like, things have really taken up speed. And the, I mean, you mentioned that you guys are doing Don Fiumi. Yeah. And um, it's been so incredible to see how many people who would have never thought of doing Dafiomi, who have never thought of like themselves as people who might even consider getting seriously engaged with Jewish text are now doing that because the texts are available to them and accessible to them. And they feel like something that they, that belongs to them. And that like, these are, that it is their business to be engaged with Jewish text, which is, I think, going to have a profound effect on like this generation and the next generation of, of, of Jews and how we think about and how we engage with religion and how we get engaged with, 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 with the textual piece of our religion. So we've been really, really pleased with, yeah. with how it's coming together. Um, you know, when you're saying that I'm nodding continually, you can't see me because you're on the phone, but like for me, uh, Safaria completely changed the way I not only access Judaism, but I think about it. It's changed my relationship with Judaism and like, if you even asked me four months ago, am I going to wake up every morning at 5.03 a.m., get an email from my Jewish learning and click on Safaria for today's, you know, today's page of Talmud, I would say that is insane. But it it's changed me. And I'm I'm wondering if, you know, you're, are you paying attention to what's going on on Facebook and other places on social media where you can see that this DOF cycle... I, I'm guessing is unlike any other that's happened in you know the last hundred and how long has this been going on? It's for? I believe since 1928, I want to okay, say. Okay, so that, I mean I'm sure every cycle is different, but this one must have something just so pro, so profoundly egalitarian and open and democratic as opposed to you know years past when everyone has to have an enormous volume of books. Yeah, I mean we are seeing it in our traffic numbers. Um, and it's phenomenal. Like the number of people who are doing this from uh, non-Orthodox background, it's huge. And I bet you seven years from now, when this thing starts over the next time, it's only going to be, that number is only going to increase. So um, yeah, it's like, it, it really is something very incredible that's happening right now. I mean, I, I, one thing I look forward to um, is, you know, sometimes I'll click over to the Rashi and that's still, I mean, that's not translated yet, right? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I, right, exactly. At some point it will be. Um, but I'm just, I'm, I'm waiting for that. I'm like, one day I'm going to click and then I'm going to see what Rashi has to say about it. And I'll be able to go through, you know, the additional commentaries on this. Um, it's just so exciting to, because as you said, Judaism is essentially one big intertextual reference. Um, from from book to book, and this you can see it all directly when you're reading a page on Safaria. So that's something that I've I've really enjoyed. When and and Dafiomi is new to me too. So although I used to do Talmud with a book, and this is so freeing to be able to just have it on my phone or whatever. It's just entirely changed um, the way we do it, as Dan said. I read it on the subway, right. Josh. I'm reading Talmud <laughs> on the red line into Boston. I mean, which isn't weird because we know people do that. Like there's that famous story of the whatever, um, I think on the Long Island. Uh, yeah. Right, right. There's a there's a, a group that always meets there on the commute. 
So, but this has just opened it up wider because you don't have to schlep your books. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you've also had this idea for Sukha City, which was an architectural design competition held in 2010, I believe, inspired by the holiday of Sukkot. And mm-hmm. it seems like with Sukha City and with Safaria, you are modernizing and making accessible to people traditions that, you know, well, some Jews know all about it and it's, this is their life, you know, Judaism is their life, but to other people, other Jews, it might seem archaic. And I'm looking at these sukkahs and they're so gorgeous and different and crazy and awesome. What motivated you to do that project? Growing up, like my parents would, my dad would shoot up a out of the garage, like not every year, because it was a lot of work, yeah. but like, you know, every other year maybe. <laughs> um, and so, and I, and I loved it as a kid. It's really fun. Sukkot is the most underappreciated holiday. Thank you. I think so too. I love that holiday. It's it's, it's like, it's just pure. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's the days of our rejoicing. It is like a happy, joyous time where you're outside and uh, eating with family under the stars. And like the weather's just starting to change, which is kind of a great moment to be outside. And, you know, you've just come through all the high holidays and it's the holiday where you're supposed to invite strangers and uh you know like bring in the neighbors and um and then it's got this architectural component mm-hmm. where like you know it's the jewish christmas tree it's the um this thing that we get to decorate and and, and build and when else do we get to be carpenters and, right. and and so you know you've got this holiday that like most american jews don't celebrate and yet it's remarkably it's this wonderful tradition and it's also what's interesting about it it's like theologically uncomplicated. Right. Um, yeah. It's not, you know, like this is, you don't have to wrestle with anything to enjoy this holiday. And it's also just like push on this a little bit further. It is so in line with so many things going on in the wider culture right now, whether it's like kind of uh, sustainable agriculture or in, in the design world. I mean, like temporary design is a very, is a very sort of au courant thing in, in, in the architecture world. Uh, or, or even the idea of like of, of, of homelessness and yeah. of temporariness. And the themes of Sukkot are very universal. And so growing up, I loved the, I loved the sukkah as an object. And 10 years ago, when my wife and I moved to New Haven, Connecticut, and for the first time in our lives had outdoor space, I decided I was going to build my first sukkah as a grown-up. And I started looking into like, okay, so what is a sukkah? Like, how do you build it? What 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 can it be? I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna make something really fun. And I got really into understanding all of the esoteric rules. And of which there are so many. Of which there are many, and they and they (laughs) they get pretty 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 weird and silly. And um, I said, like, what would it look like if you gave these rules to the best architects in the world? Like, what would they come up with? And that was the germ of the idea. And uh, I took it to my friend Roger Bennett, who um, was the founder of a, a Jewish organization called Reboot. And together, we created this idea to get um, a really big public space in New York City. And it ended up being Union Square Park uh, at 14th Street. And hold a competition to invite the world's architects to reimagine what the sukkah could be um, using 
you know, everything that modern architecture and design has as uh, tools, but within the ancient design constraints. And with one additional design constraint, which was that they couldn't be bigger than, I think it was like 19 feet by 8 feet. Otherwise, they were no longer temporary structures, according to the Department of Building, <laughs> and would require permits. So they had to be a, a little bit contained. Um, and also, we wanted to put up 12 of them. And so right. uh, it took a year. So it's from that Sukkot when I built my first circuit to the final execution of the project. And we ended up having uh, 12 really wild, what, radical circuits constructed in Union Square Park. The architects had to build them themselves. And for two days before Sukkot of that year, uh, we had sort of the full spectrum of, of, of not just New York Jews, but of New Yorkers coming through and uh, appreciating these structures and seeing this ritual object, but also seeing this holiday in, I hope, a new way. And then we had, like, you know, everybody got to vote on which was their favorite sukkah. And uh, then Mayor Bloomberg came down and named one of them the official sukkah of New York City. <laughs> and that one got to stay up through the holiday. <laughs> That's fascinating. You know, Josh, you make these segues so easy because my next question is about how you're blending science and religion. You know, you, you write books on the science of memory and you're doing this project about architecture. And at the same time, you're diving into ancient Jewish text. And, you know, when you look through history, the relationship between science and religion has at times been fraught, but not to you. How do you see science and religion existing in tandem? So, relatively unproblematically. I mean, I, I think they're, it's, they're, they're fraught for, uh, I guess, sort of a, a, a maybe, a, maybe a, a Christian conception of science and a Christian conception of religion. That I wasn't naming names. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, think no, like, I mean, like uh, Rambam would have, would have felt there was a, a conflict, yeah, I, you know? Um. Yeah, I, it, to me, they're like two two separate. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould called them, you know, uh, uh, what uh, basically separate domains. Mm -hmm. And that's 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 just, I guess I don't think about it that much. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I'm not like I don't uh, I don't work myself into into not trying to uh, make everything make sense. It's, uh, I've got. The things that I do, the practices that I practice, the traditions that I find interesting and engaging and exciting and important to my to, to me and my family, and like that's a totally separate matter from science and our attempts to understand the universe and yeah. how it works. And um, yeah, I'm 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 not smart enough to uh, to get worked up about it. <laughs> Well, speaking of one of your many, many, many projects, Atlas Obscura was it's really fascinating. I actually first I first learned about it when I saw this book on my uncle's coffee table. And it was a it was a coffee table book, Atlas Obscura, and your name was on the cover. And I was like, oh, hmm, opening it up. And it was amazing. So it's a an online magazine slash travel company slash whatever that catalogs unusual and obscure travel destinations. So what was the impetus for that? What was the motivation um, for you to create this compilation of all these incredible and weird, strange, cool places in the world? It started I, more or less as an art project. And a friend of mine and I, Dylan Thuris, we, we were looking for a resource like this. Like, we had been traveling all over Eastern Europe. I had spent a summer driving all over America 
just trying to find really, you know, interesting hidden, the hidden corners of America, mm-hmm. the places that were, you know, a little bit hard to find, but that revealed something about either who we are or, uh, or about the country or about uh, just that that made me feel a sense of wonder. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really the operative. Uh, I don't know if you call it an emotion, but the operative thing. Catalyst? Well, yeah, everything in Atlas Obscura is about evoking a sense of wonder. And we are trying to give people a set of tools to feel a sense of wonder about the world and to be curious about the world. And so it started with this, like, whoa, let's just, you know, let's create this, like, website where people could share tips about really interesting things they have seen or know about. And it would be a kind of wonder cabinet of... Mm places all over the world and a community grew up around this idea and it's just been this thing that's kind of kept growing and growing and growing and now it's like uh we've got about 60 people working on atlas obscura out of an office in brooklyn and we do we have not just a, a website that is regularly cataloging all these places all over the world it's more than a database now we have almost like a, a digital magazine that's publishing uh, a handful of stories every day on themes of wondering. Uh, we do uh, video, we do books, obviously. Um, and the really exciting thing is we realize like this is not really about experiencing wonder on the screen. Like our goal is to get people out in the world feeling a sense of wonder. And that means in the real world. And we should be helping to facilitate that in the real world. And so we started organizing events like experiences where we would help people do something extraordinary like whether you know get access to the back room of some museum with an expert or um hang out with uh somebody who like trains falcons in the desert or whatever it is we would help make those experiences possible for people and we do that not just in the u.s but we actually take people on trips all over the world so we'll do about 150 trips in 2020, taking people wow. either to really crazy places they would never think to go. Like I'm going on a trip with a group to Turkmenistan in about uh, three weeks, you know, about a month. And um, or we're taking people to places that they might think they know and showing them to them in a totally new way. Like we do a trip to Berlin that uh, only visits places that are underground and experiences the city in that way. So it's, we, we try and make either, you know, the unfamiliar and um, far away accessible or take people to um, places that they think they know or they're familiar with and show them to them in new ways that make those places Did you have a place that you would say, I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite maybe, but your favorite obscure place or one that made you feel that sense of wonder you were describing the most. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it pertains to this trip I'm about to take. So when Dylan and I launched Atlas Obscura and we, you know, basically really, it was like hanging a shingle on the internet saying, hey, if you know about really wondrous and curious things, share them here. One of the first things anybody sent us was a photograph of this giant burning hole in the middle of the desert in Turkmenistan. And it looks like maybe the crater of a volcano or um, something natural and but very, very strange. Turns out it's 
not natural. It's the result of an industrial mining accident that took place in the 1970s when some Soviet oil drillers accidentally punctured the ground, released all this methane by accident, and set it on fire, hoping to burn it off. Wow. And the hole has been burning for 40 years. It's just this otherworldly sight. And Dylan and I said to each other, you know. I wish you could uh, see our faces right now. Yeah, our faces are (laughs) jaw dropped. (laughs) Well, we we said to each other, you know, if this Atlas Obscura thing ever really works, like one day we should go and celebrate by going to the gates of hell, which is what the locals call this hole in the desert. Let's go to the gates of hell and have a beer. (laughs) And lo, 10 years later, um, we're totally coincidentally, our trip team uh, started putting together the details for a trip to Turkmenistan. And we were like, oh, well, all right, we got to go on this trip. And we ended up having a, like a, uh, giving away a bunch of tickets to our fans on the internet. Uh, to Atlas Obscura fans to come with us for free. And so we're taking a whole group to Turkmenistan <laughs> to have beers with us on the edge. You're of the going to hell. hell with a group. Of, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so other than that that trip, which sounds truly epic, what projects are next for you? Um, well, I've been working on a book about the world's last hunter-gatherers, oh, okay. um, which will hopefully uh, be finished before too long. And that is about, I spent four years going back and forth to the Republic of Congo which is where the largest remaining group of hunter-gatherers currently lives. And I'm trying to tell the story of one guy and his family and how he thinks about the world and what his life is like, because it's very, very, very different from what our lives are like here. Yeah. Um, and very, very the same in lots of ways, of course. Um, so there's that. And then I'll tell you what, I'm actually, uh, I've been talking about bringing back the city for 2021. Oh, really? So, Amazing. Yeah, it feels like time, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it would be fun to not only like have that wonder, wonderful experience of bringing these, bringing a bunch of crazy structures into existence for the people to see, but also the thought is maybe it's a way to like actually create something that people can use. Uh, one of my disappointments about Circuit City is that I had thought that 10 years later, like people would have figured out how to mass produce interesting circuits. I thought like <laughs> plant the seed of the idea, other people will take it and run with it. And yet, like it is still the case that if you go online and try and buy a sukkah, you're going to buy something that looks kind of uninspired and um, the same sort of, uh, you know, yeah. metal pipe uh, or PVC pipe and like uh, some cheap curtains. Like the and, bamboo the bamboo roof. And the bamboo roof. Yeah. And so I think if we do this again, the idea will be let's, cre- let's figure out how to have the product of this be things that like people could actually put in their backyard and 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 make it easy for people so that's that's the idea but it's it's really still just germinating right now amazing the ikea of suckers <laughs> yeah there you go amazing uh well josh this has been so so fascinating um thank you so much for joining us today and talking about all these truly incredible projects thank you For more information about Josh Vore, Safaria, Atlas Obscura, and Sukkah City, check out the show notes. Be sure to follow at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to The Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. 
You can also email us at podcast at jewishboston.com with your comments, feedback, and ideas for future topics and guests. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Jesse, and our composer, Ryan. Music